Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. The sad news this week of the death at 83 of John Hume, the Nobel Peace Prize winner and giant of Northern Irish politics, brought back many memories for everyone who, like me, can remember his pivotal role in bringing peace to Northern Ireland. And it put many of today's politicians into sharp and unforgiving relief. Quite simply, he was no less than the father of the Northern Ireland peace process. A founding member of the moderate nationalist SDLP and a key civil rights campaigner, John Hume laid the groundwork for the peace process by taking part in talks with Sinn Féin in the late 1980s. He played a major role in the process and his work culminated, of course, in the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, which largely ended decades of sectarian violence. Former US President Bill Clinton and current SDLP leader and FOIL MP Colm Eastwood have called him Ireland's Martin Luther King. I never thought in terms of being a leader, John Hume once said. I thought very simply in terms of helping people. Here with me to explain what John Hume meant and why he is so revered is friend of the podcast, SDLP MP for South Belfast and former MLA Claire Hammer. Hello, Claire. How are you? Hello, Naomi. Thanks very much for having me and that lovely introduction to to John. Uh, In your maiden speech in the Commons uh, last December, you referred to John Hume as my political hero. Tell us why. Yes, I mean, I, I suppose as you said out there, he he really he he designed the Northern Irish peace process, and I suppose over decades dragged everybody else through it, whether they wanted to participate uh, or, or not. And he yeah he designed a, a, a solution and a set of solutions that solved a conflict uh, that, as we know, had had been rolling for 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 literally centuries. And he did that um, as an international as somebody fundamentally committed to the European ideal uh, as a social democrat and just uh, as a practical and decent person who, who, who started his political activism in the credit unions in impoverished Derry and who really is, is, a, is a fairly good blueprint for anybody in, in activism or, or, or politics. So, um, and as I say created solutions and, and, and frameworks so that um, you know people of my political generation um, have have a route map and have some a, a way to uh, address our political goals. Well, without wanting to sort of give your age away, uh, you and I uh, are very similar age, um, and we were both teenagers in Belfast uh, when he was doing his most valuable and important work. Can you remember like, when you were first kind of conscious of John Hume as a political figure in your life? Yeah, I mean, it's worth it's worth saying. I I grew up in a fairly political household. My dad had been uh, involved, preferably, but involved in in the civil rights uh, movement, and uh, my parents had both been uh, activists in in the SDLP. My mum had been a nurse and, and had nursed in on Bloody Friday and uh, after a day of bombing and looking after uh, victims of that bombing and had attended a meeting addressed by John Hume the following day and immediately joined the SDLP and and the party and and he as its lodestar and its political driver were a big part of my life anyways but I think even even those who wouldn't have been so politically aware uh, will be aware of him as a as a nightly presence funny uh, we watched last night Derry Girls and there's a, a, a brilliant clip uh, where the auntie went Gosh, John Hume's really obsessed with PCO. It's all he ever goes on about. <laughs> <laughs> 
works out for him. We'd seen that clip yesterday and thought it was a, a fitting tribute and a way to pass the evening. But I suppose he, he was just his relentless um, commitment to the same mm. message meant that nobody couldn't have been aware of it. People mm. people still joke about his single transferable speech. But quite simply, <laughs> he would he would come back and he would say all the time, the fundamental problem hasn't changed. So the solution hasn't changed. I reviewed a book put together by Sean Farron a couple of years ago, another SDLP minister, which was human in his own words. And it was just, he was a prolific kind of writer in the 70s and 80s when he didn't have that much by way of a political platform. But I mean, it was about seven or eight months into the last Storm and Stalemate. And I was just blown away by how relevant what he had been. Yeah, prescient. And what he had been saying in the 70s and 80s and 90s still very much fit the bill and and, and provided the template for for how you need to to solve the periodic problems that that hit us in Northern Ireland. Um, So so as I say, I I probably was was in the privileged position of of growing up in a household that absorbed and, and revealed and contributed to his work but um, I thought that Derry Girls is a good way of showing that he was on everybody's radar. <laughs> Absolutely and uh, you, you've touched on the civil rights movement and of course John Hume didn't sort of burst onto the peace-broking scene just in the 80s and 90s. He was himself active in the civil rights movement as early as, I think, 1968. And uh, over the past few days, we've seen many images from back then showing him you know, soaking wet from water cannon, pleading for calm with soldiers, even being arrested. And many unionists sort of dismissed the civil rights campaign as essentially an IRA front organization. I mean, maybe you don't know the answers, but I'd be really interested to get your views. What was the injustice that you think drove him to participate in that movement then? You know, was it his family background or just this kind of inherent sense of right and wrong? So so it was both. Uh, and as you say, he, he certainly came to, to wider prominence in the civil rights movement. And without digressing too much, obviously, he was a Europhile, but he was also watching um, the US. And, and obviously, 68 was a big year in Europe. And, and in civil rights in, in America as well. And he was drawing inspiration and ideas from there too. But he would have been well known in Derry uh, in the years before that, because as I say, he founded the credit unions there as, as a way of providing access to poor families, to, to, to resources. He, he and a handful of others with, with basically small change um, set up what is a, a thriving movement and uh, in Ireland. Um, but uh, the injustice was, I suppose it was, it was it was twofold. I mean, there was just uh, impoverishment. There was there were there was very little um, by way of of decent work in Derry. Uh, there were shirt factories and so on, but um, it, it, it they weren't what we would call breadwinner jobs, and actually it, it pr- primarily uh, employed women, as it happens at the time. Um, there was real uh, lack of public housing, and and you know essentially many families were were living uh, in slums, and that was compounded by gerrymandering. Were, were, the, were the electoral boundaries were manipulated and skewed so that the majority, which were Catholics and nationalists, the vast majority of the population uh, of, of Derry, were essentially locked out of power. He saw poverty in general, and he was very clear that that poverty. I mean, it wasn't. It was you know, working class Protestants and Unionists were, were also you know in many in many cases in poverty as well. Albeit would have had uh, slightly more ready access to work in industry, particularly in other parts 
of Northern Ireland. But I, I think, I mean, at its core, he was he was just an intensely and immensely practical mm. person. He was motivated and driven by uh, by by poverty and addressing the the everyday needs of people. But he realised that it was very much plumbed in uh, to to the sectarian discrimination. So as you say, the civil rights movement sought to address that. It really was a collection of, as I say, activists like Hume and 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 those who would go on to find the SD found the SDLP, um, communist and, and people's democracy and student activists, some Republicans uh, as well, and indeed people from, from a unionist background. And it, so it was mm. lots of different groups coming together, but Hume would have been uh, very involved in, in, in trying to uh, amalgamate the platform and was very keen that it wouldn't be pitted as, as some sort of, you know, just, you know, nationalist endeavour. And he decoupled it from, from for example, the cause of Irish <laughs> unity. Well, let, let's talk. Let's talk about that a bit more, because obviously, at, at his core was this, you know, absolute opposition to violence. And how hard was it to make the case for non-violence amongst nationalists and republicans during the height of the troubles? Well, but bear in mind, you know, physical force has been, and that, and the, and, and sort of a, a romanticizing physical force has been a thread in Irish nationalism f- for for the centuries. You know, and, and I suppose moving people away from that, you know, on a, on an intellectual level. But I mean, it was people were facing systemic discrimination. They 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 then, uh, when the civil rights movement was using exclusively peaceful means and kind of, you know, young people just walking, marching. They were, you know, suppressed in terms of, uh, you know, marches being banned. Then they were physically uh, beaten uh, off the streets on a number of occasions. And then, of course, you know, as far I mean, in 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 its worst form, in, in Bloody Sunday, uh, fourteen mm. of them were, were murdered uh, by 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 troops, entirely innocent uh, protesters, and. So you can understand, you know, the blood being up in people. One because this, 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 you know, myth perpetuated that every generation should take up arms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he he had to do two things. He had to, as I say, recast the solution and show Irish nationalists that uh, unity could only come by consent and by consensus, yeah. and that the mantra of Brits out, um, you know, ignored the 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 reality. That that a million of our neighbours are British, and uh, and that uh, and and that you know Brits out therefore includes them and and isn't real. And he uh, by by later working in the consent principle into the Good Friday Agreement, you know, nailed it down that you couldn't drive. Uh, British interests out, uh, but by violence, and as I say, um, that ignored uh, you know a million a million of your neighbours, uh, and that it, that it had to be done by agreement. So so that was the sort of intellectual argument. But bear in mind, people were finding that you know their attempts to to use the structures there and to and to and to protest peacefully were being met with violence. And then, of course, over the subsequent twenty five years of sectarian violence and tit for tat, obviously in many cases the base human response was anger and we we were locked in in literally a a cycle of violence and he had to just relentlessly remind people locate his answers in in what victims were experiencing and and i suppose showing people making clear that that was a stalemate and a scoreless draw Mm. and uh nobody was going to achieve their, their 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 aims in that way 
when I think of John, you know, I sort of think about this quiet authority that he had. And when you listen to his speeches, you can really hear, I think, his previous studies in the seminary and work as a a school teacher um, coming across in that very patient but firm tone um, that was in you know, stark contrast to some of his other political contemporaries, you know, not least, of course, Ian Paisley Sr. Was it that manner, uh, you know, as much as his actual words, that made it difficult, actually, for people to shun his pleas for closer, you know, cross-party, cross-community working? I I think you're right. I think, one, as I say, rabble-rousing was the sort of dominant uh, medium of of the time, wasn't it? And as I say, appealing to those base uh, instincts. But it was, I suppose, the, 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 yep, calm authority. And I was making the point before that really he led far beyond his authority. He was a member of parliament, of course, and he was a party leader, but he wasn't a first minister. He didn't really have a forum through which he just, he galvanised people by, yes, his quiet manner, consistency, repeating it over and over again, and by just unimpeachable logic, really. And that's how he finally, after the decades, got militant republicanism and unionism on board with the fact that there really was no other alternative. There was no victory to be had by either side. Mm. And, that you know, as, as he said so many times, victories aren't solutions. Um, and yes, I, I, think, I think that's it. I think he wasn't reactionary and responding and just sparking mm. off um, the latest uh, atrocity or, or, or the latest outrageous thing that others had said or done and I think I, I, it's hard I mean I, I mean I'm, I'm not sure that he was ever bested in debate he was still he was a street fighter as well as all of as well as you know statesman like he, he was known to be quick in debate but I, but I think it was logic and smarts as well as mm. yes calm authority despite John being such a pioneer of peace in Northern Ireland SDLP fortunes and those of the Ulster Unionist Party so dwindled. But should we judge those parties in terms of their wider impact on politics rather than, you know, simply electoral success at the ballot box? And, you know, maybe you could talk us through a little bit about why Sinn and DUP have been more successful than the other the other parties in recent years. Oh, how long have you got? Hume was very uh, aware, and many would say that in ways he sacrificed, and uh, you know he he kind of knew that when uh, you know he ensured that republicanism in, in the form of Sinn Fein and the IRA as a movement were brought into or or led towards exclusively peaceful and democratic means. I think he probably knew in a way he was sacrificing the SDLP in some ways, and I suppose. You know, it's been said many times that Sinn Féin stole the SDLP's clothes and that they sort of absorbed Hume's speak and, and Hume's lessons and, and probably delivered it in a considerably more organised fashion and, and more resourced. And, and, and that's not a secret. Sinn Féin are, 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 are a wealthy party and a, a disciplined party and probably, you know, delivered it in a way. And, and over those years, Hume was just flat out in, in bringing people along and using his influence in, in Brussels in Washington, in, in London, in order to bring pressure to bear on the Irish government and on the UK government. And I suppose while he was doing that, he wasn't at home building a political machine uh, and, and building, I suppose, a, a, a political army. Um, and that that in some ways, um, you know, led to the SDLP not being as organised as it could or it should have been. And then I suppose, Naomi, once you got into, in theory, you know, the everyday working the common ground that the Assembly was designed to, uh, 
uh, to facilitate on, on getting on with everyday uh, issues, yeah. health and education and, and the economy and so on, because of the structures and, and the necessary structures at the start of that to, to bring in, you know, unionism and nationalism and so on. He thought that people would focus a lot more on, on the everyday and on, and on the, the shared interests. But of course, they didn't. They scratched the wound at every possible opportunity mm-hmm. uh, of, of the issues that divide us. You know, if you, if you looked at them as a as a business or as a political party operating anywhere, Sinn Féin and the DUP are, as I say, disciplined and resourced and very, very good at boiling down every question here uh, to the green and orange and I suppose putting yeah. their, their rivals behind the eight ball a little bit. That's my analysis of, of, of how we you. got to where we were. But it is worth saying that, that Hume's goal was peace. It was an end to the, to the daily yeah, slaughter. Rather than, yeah, dominance of the SDLP electorally. Yeah, yeah. And that's to his credit. Now, look, it wouldn't be a, a podcast recording with me if we didn't touch on Europe. Um, and John and, and his wife, Pat, were both huge advocates of European integration. Um, and in his Strasbourg speech in 1998, he heaped enormous praise on the EU for its support in helping the peace and reconciliation process in Northern Ireland, especially uh, the work and, and support that they, they funded at grassroots level. He said, and I couldn't agree with him anymore, that the EU is the best example in the history of the world of conflict resolution. Uh, and that it works because of its principles of having respect for differences and diversity. Without proud internationalists like Charles Kennedy and John Hume, you know, and all these sort of political giants that help shape our politics who are now gone, how can we best champion those values in, in Britain and Northern Ireland now? And, you know, who, who are the next generation of leaders that are going to uphold those internationalist values? The, the beauty of all those things that John said and actually, you know, what I found moving and encouraging about the last 24 hours is how much, you know, it, people weren't just focusing, I haven't been focusing just on the on the chronology and, you know, his kind of biography. They've been fo- focusing on his ideas and the things that he said and actually they're beautifully simple, you know, and he, he used to, he, he, as you said, was wholly committed to the European ideal, immediately saw uh, membership uh, of the European Union as, as fundamental to the resolution of, of the situation in Northern Ireland for two reasons. One, for economic development. And as he said many, many times, the best peace process is a job. He, he saw the opportunity and he leveraged the opportunity and he used his influence in Europe to, you know, to really get structural funds and so on and the peace funds into Northern Ireland. He saw fundamentally that, as he said, the French were still French, the, the Germans were still Germans. He, he saw that countries who had, you know, been very much at blows mere years before, managed to find reconciliation and to build political structures that could, as you say, accommodate diversity, accommodate difference, provide a platform for compromise. And and I suppose that that fundamental principle that you you know you pool your resources and that compromise isn't a, isn't a dirty word. And I mean, like the Good Friday Agreement, the preamble to it borrows so heavily from the Treaty of Rome. It's able to do that because the what he's suggesting is logical and simple and unreasonable to most people. So it's not a very, very difficult message to carry. We just need to try and um, uh, present it to more people and, and to present it in that fundamental way. And as you probably, particularly in advance of the referendum, uh, the Brexit referendum, that is, and in the years since, we, we do sometimes get mired in the detail and, and we, you know, shout statistics at each other and all that kind of stuff. But I suppose if you if you strip it back to those fundamental 
fundamental principles that there's strength and unity you know that there's opportunity in, in pooled resources I, I think you know it's it's it doesn't take you know a particularly I don't think we need to find another Hume to deliver the message we just need to find more people to repeat the message I often say that uh, there is a frozen conflict in Northern Ireland not a resolved conflict um, and I'm, I'm kind of you know interested to know whether you would agree with that and if so, is it project fear to say that a no deal or a very hard Brexit might thaw, risk thawing that frost? Oh, well, it, it most certainly does. Uh, and I don't think it, it isn't project fear because, and I try to explain it in this way, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, John, in it created rational mechanisms to, to address the things that divide us. So rational ways to, to ensure that, uh, you know, the voices of unionism and the voices of nationalism, and increasingly we need to ensure the voices of people who identify as neither, but structures that allowed both, you know, sets of opinion to be included in kind of consociational government he provided the consent mechanism that meant you know that that nothing would happen without at least a majority and 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 he wants to shoot much he wanted to shoot much further than a 50% plus one but and it basically meant that we didn't have to talk all day every day about sovereignty and identity and, and borders and so on of course there are those who love talking about sovereignty and identity and borders and have spent the last 20 years uh, of, of peace doing so but Brexit meant that that was all we talked about since 2016. It just, it just, you know, injected it back into the middle of, of our political discourse and meant that everything did come back to, well, do we look to Dublin or London on that? And, and, and of course, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, w w the Good Friday Agreement is about relationships. It's about three sets, relationships in Northern Ireland, relationships North and South of Ireland and relationships between Britain and Ireland, which is why slapping a border uh, on either of those axes is fundamentally, you know, in, in contravention of the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement. I suppose the difference hasn't been resolved in that there there are still people who seek Irish unity and there are still people who, who seek uh, to, to remain part of the of of uh, the UK. And while I fall in the former category, I, I accept that they're both legitimate and rational viewpoints, but he has created a way, uh, he has created a pathway for those who, who want to achieve Irish unity and he has created a challenge for those who want to maintain the union. It, it should have been about um, enhancing, I believe, as, as somebody who believes in Irish unity, he created structures as well that allowed us to build north-south dimension, build services, build the economy, um, and I suppose, you know, in 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 sell that to people who weren't instinctively of the same view. I don't believe nationalism has used those uh, opportunities and those structures that he that he kind of weaved in uh, very, very well. But you know, whatever, even if you're one of the people who just wants to maintain the status quo, it does uh, really, it risks that stability because it 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 means that unimpeded access to the UK for people who who, who identify as unionist uh, is, is currently at threat uh, and in the risk, uh, in, in the case of a no deal, unimpeded access to the whole of the island for those who identify as Irish is, is at risk. So nobody, re nobody imagined in the design of the Good Friday Agreement that a scenario would arise where we weren't no. uh, all, all in the European Union but you know the Good Friday Agreement allows you to be British or Irish or both as you so choose and unfortunately Brexit uh, tries to make people choose. And finally Claire um, naming you know parks and airports and so on after people that have passed away can be politically toxic and, and loaded. How do you think John should be remembered so that future generations can learn from him too? 
by way of a foundation, I suppose, that finds ways to support and amplify voices and 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 I suppose arguments uh, that 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 fit with with his viewpoint and his narrative is is one way to do it. Yes, infrastructure is is another way, and and of course we you know Derry is is beloved home city and enjoyed new pieces of infrastructure and and may do again. But I don't want to. I would I wouldn't like to go. Well, there you go. There's your bridge, or there's your street, or there's your building tick box. I, I genuinely think that, and I think those who you know endorse and and, and kind of run with what he said will will want to find ways that are more alive and more dynamic to keep him alive. And and the fact is, his his place is assured in history. He's not a flash in the pan. And you know, people have been talking for. And I, I remember I said something and something I wrote a few a few years ago that he he, he will be counted along, uh, you know, with the great Irish uh, statesman, and 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 I think he is the the great Irish statesman. He he has achieved more in some ways. He achieved what he set out to achieve. He created peace and he created a framework for people to to achieve their their political aims. So in some ways, he's one of very very few politicians uh, who founded a party that achieved what it set out to do. Yeah, I would love to see stuff named after him I would like to see him represented and alive in in for example um you know in the Doyle in Dublin in in, in Westminster in Stormont you know in places so that so that he, there's visual reminders but I just I think we need to be more imaginative in finding ways for his ideas uh to live and to be celebrated for all times. Claire thank you so much for joining us to remember John Hume. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for listening. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with the main panel podcast on Wednesdays. You can get each edition early and without adverts, plus our new and very attractive Bunker merchandise too when you back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmaster production. Mm-hmm.